Well, if you're joining us today, uh, we at City Light Church are in the midst of our summer sermon series on the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. We've been at it, I think, about three weeks now. And the title of the series is The Shepherd King. The Shepherd King, because kind of the, the, the hero of the story in one sense is, is David, King David, one of the main figures of the entire Bible. And today, I'm really psyched to preach today because today is the day that David actually gets into the story. There's a bit of a run-up to this. We're going to be looking at uh, when David is anointed uh, to be king instead of Saul and when he goes out and fights Goliath. So we're going to look at David and Goliath. I'm really psyched about this. I'm looking forward to it. Now, there is a lot to learn about David from this story, David and Goliath, and from all the stories that he's in. But more than that, we're going to learn that David is not just the hero of these stories, but he's a pointer to a far greater hero who was to come. He's a pointer to a greater son of his, Jesus Christ. We're going to learn both of those. And uh, basically, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. There are two basic approaches to David and Goliath. There's what I call the way of emulation and the way of imputation. Emulation, imputation. Emulation says David and other people like him, they're, you know, they're figures and, and we should, you know, they're examples and we should emulate, we should imitate their behavior. And I want to say, yes, that's true. They are, the, the figures in the Old Testament are given for us to emulate. We can learn so much, we'd be foolish not to. But that's not all. And if you stop there, you're missing something. There's also the way of Imputation. Imputation means that what happens to someone gets passed on to someone else. The benefits get passed on to someone else. And so we're going to learn today how David, as I said, is appointed to Jesus Christ, who is the true David, the true champion. And because of what Jesus did for us in going to the cross, the benefits of his victory get imputed, get transferred to us, just like in this story, the, uh, uh, the actions of David get transferred, imputed to the people of Israel. Emulation, imputation, we need both. That's all I'm trying to say. You don't want one without the other. There's a tension. We're going to look at both. And one other thing, often the story of David and Goliath is portrayed as a story of courage. You know, it's about, you know, figure out what are your giants and facing your fears and courage and all that. And that's true. I want to say that's true. But as I've been in this text, as I've been studying it, thinking about it, praying about it, I've realized it's really about more than that. What it really is about, I believe, is about having a certain perspective in facing your giants, a certain perspective, what I'm going to call the glory perspective, of framing things in terms of God's name and God's fame and God's glory, which will then lead to the courage and, and the faith and the zeal and all that stuff. So that's my approach. Laid my cards on the table. Here we go. So as you think about how to apply this text to your life, as you think about what does David and Goliath say to me, I'd like you to think about any situation in your life that would seek to diminish God's glory, okay? That would seek to make God seem small or insignificant or unimportant in your life. It could be in your personal life. It could be in your relationships or it could be in our wider world. Any situation, especially big scary ones, that would seek to diminish God's glory in your life, in our church, in our community, in our world. And our big idea is this. God's anointed champion faces God's appointed enemy God's way. God's anointed champion faces God's appointed enemy 
God's way. And this will be our outline. We'll kind of go through each of those. And uh, now, I, there, there was some chatter. I listened to last week's sermon. I wasn't here. Matt preached. Matt said something about, like, you guys could leave five minutes early for my sermon like, because he went along. I'm just going to say, that ain't happening, you know. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kick that can down the road. Like, you could leave five minutes early for his next sermon. Like, we'll, just keep, we'll just keep kicking this down see where it goes. No, we'll, we'll be succinct. All right. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. That's, uh, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you, page 238 in that Bible. Just want to sum up to where we're at. Okay, 1 Samuel, it's about 1,000 B.C., okay? And about 1,000 years before this, 2,000 B.C., God appears to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to save the world through you. From you will co- I'm going to make a covenant with you. From you will come a people. From you will come kings, and the world will be saved through you. And so we know in the course of time, there's the people Israel, okay? And so Israel, they go down to uh, slavery in Egypt. They come up out of Egypt. Moses leads them out, and they go to the promised land. But we know that the promised land, you know, it, they had some work to do. They had some conquering to do in the promised land. And so the books of uh, uh, Joshua and Judges are about conquering the promised land. And so now, uh, 1 Samuel is about 1,000 B.C., and we learned a couple weeks ago that the people got tired of fighting, and so they asked God for a king. We learned it wasn't bad for them to have a king. God said they would have a king. It was the way they went about it. That was the problem. So God, uh, uh, there's the first king. We learned last week about King Saul is the first king. Didn't work out that great, okay? Uh, it didn't work out that great, and God rejects Saul as king because of his partial obedience. We learned last week partial obedience is disobedience. Check out Matt's sermon if you missed that. So this brings us to uh, 1 Samuel 16. We'll summarize. And so in 1 Samuel 16, God uh, sends the prophet Samuel to anoint a successor for King Saul. And, uh, but it's interesting. He doesn't tell Bethlehemite who it will be. He just tells Samuel it's one of the sons of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And Jesse has eight sons. So Samuel goes, he obeys, he assumes it's the oldest. He just assumes, you know, God, that's how God works. God, you know, he works to the oldest, the biggest, this and that. But listen to what happens in uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in fact, it's none of the oldest. Uh, Verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The hero has entered the story. God's anointed champion, David, the shepherd king, is here. So let's talk for a couple of minutes about God's anointed champion. Let's talk about David. Now first, what do we learn? David is he's the youngest He's probably a teenager here. We're not sure. Maybe 16, maybe 18. The Hebrew word just means kind of a young, unmarried, uh, not a father yet. So he's a young man, okay? And he's a shepherd. Now, a shepherd is, it's not the highest occupation, but it is far from the lowest. 
In fact, uh, all ancient Near Eastern kings and all the ancient Near Eastern literature are referred to as shepherds. So even if you knew the culture, you know there's something special about this guy. And so he's a shepherd, he's young, and the anointing is important. Let's talk about the anointing. So anointing, it just means smeared with oil. And so this was uh, something that was done in the Old Testament for prophets, priests, and especially kings. They're anointed, they have oil poured on them, and they're set apart. They're appointed for a special act of service to God. And along with the uh, physical anointing is a spiritual anointing. As we see here, the Holy Spirit comes on them and, uh, and endows them with courage and with power. And in fact, if you trace out what the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit works throughout all scriptures, he brings courage and he brings zeal. The book of Acts, for example, they're preaching, they're you know, doing all kind of amazing stuff. It's because they have the Holy Spirit. So uh, uh, God sets David apart to be his anointed shepherd king. He anoints him, sets his spirit on him, and he, uh, to be the leader of his people, to lead them with uh, peace and, 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 and uh, justice and mercy. And he gives them courage. Now, a point of application right here. Now, you and I, okay, we're not David, okay? We're not uh, kings in one sense, but you must know that you and I have an anointing. You and I, if you are believers, if you are united to Christ by faith, we have the Holy Spirit of God, just like David did. In fact, we have something better than David. We have his Holy Spirit living inside of us. David didn't even have that in the Old Testament period. We have his Spirit living inside us. And in the same way that the Spirit uh, endows uh, David for, uh, and appoints him for service and gives him courage and zeal and all this, so you and I, my friends, we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so, okay, we're not David. He has a special calling but we do have a calling. We are his anointed. Paul writes of this in the New Testament. John writes of this in the New Testament. You and I are God's anointed, set apart, set with his seal. So God sets David apart. David is God's anointed one. And what you have to see is what happens in uh, chapter 17, David and Goliath, is very much related to what we just saw in chapter 16. They go together. They're two sides of the coin. In chapter 16, uh, David uh, is anointed in private with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 17, he proves his calling. He proves his mettle through an, an external act of uh, conquest and warfare. They go together. Or, you know, his, the, the internal call in chapter 16 is matched by the external call in chapter 17. Or to say it very simply, David's works must match his faith. So that's God's anointed champion. Let's look at God's appointed enemy. So let's read together. 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Okay, so you've got armies on either side. You've got the kind of no man's land in the middle. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Depending on what cubit you're using, that's anywhere from eight feet to nine foot six. Pretty dang tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 126 pounds. He had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. It was really big. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 to 20 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. 
He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, let's talk about the Philistines. The Philistines were the archetypal enemy of God's people in the time of the judges and and the early kings. They inhabited the southwest coast of Israel, kind of the modern uh, Gaza Strip. That's where they uh, lived. They originally came from, probably from Crete. They were called the Sea Peoples. And uh, they were very technologically advanced. They had strong cities. You can see all this. uh, This is really high-tech gear we're talking about with the battle gear. They had a rich material culture. They had a lot of pottery. I have a friend, uh, an archaeologist at Penn, and, and she specializes in Philistine pottery. There's tons of it all over the place. In other words, they were tough and they were smart, okay? Now, Goliath. Let's talk about Goliath, okay? Goliath is like the original, like, Tony Stark here, man. I mean, he's, the dude's Iron Man, right? I mean, you know, here, I mean, he's tall, right? He's eight, eight nine foot He's not, you know, it's not mythological. It's not supernaturally tall. It's just really, really tall. Maybe he might have had a, a glandular problem. We don't know. He's really tall. No, seriously. And so, uh, but, but, you know, he, he's big, he's bad, and, and he's got all this, he's decked out in the latest kit. You know, he's got bronze, and that's really high tech. And, you know, it seems kind of hokey to us, but this is serious stuff. He's, you know, it's heavy, it's big, it's bad. There's an Old Testament scholar that says this amount of detail, especially in, in a bad guy like this, is very, very unusual. And it's trying to tell us something. It's setting up a contrast with David. And uh, this scholar says that uh, uh, Goliath is the quantitative embodiment, the quantitative embodiment of a hero. In other words, he is seriously, seriously bad tushy. Seriously bad tushy. What? <laughs> Hard tush? I don't know. Anyway. So, uh, and, 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 he, and he, he, you know, there's this, sing- let's talk about single combat. He's called a champion. Do you know, literally the word in Hebrew, champion, means the man between. The man between. You've got the army over here. You've got the army over there. This was known in the ancient world. Why bicker and argue and kill each other and this and that? Let's just send one guy from your side, one guy from our side. We'll duke it out. Single combat. And the point is, the fate of the many rests on the actions of the one. As goes this battle so goes the fate of the nation. Single combat. He's the man between. Now, I've said he's God's appointed enemy. And I, I said that very carefully. What's up with that? Well, here's what's up with that. Did you know the uh, book of Judges, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, to about 3, 3, tells us that God allowed certain nations, including the Philistines, to remain in the promised land. And it says exactly why God allowed it. It says that God allowed it to uh, teach, to test the Israelites if they would obey uh, the word of the Lord and to teach them warfare. Very, very interesting. So the point is this. Whatever you are facing, okay, whatever giant, whatever uh, uh, is tempted to diminish God's reign and God's rule and your glory in your life, know that God has sovereignly allowed it. He is in control, even over the things that tempt you and test you. He is in control. And this is, my friends, this is so important. This is crucially important. Do you see why? See, there's a certain type of person, certain type of religious person, a certain type of Christian that says, ah, God's never going to let anything bad happen to me. If I just follow the principles, if I just do the right thing, keep my nose clean, he's never going to let anything bad happen to me. But that's not true. 
But friends, it's not true. We know it's not true. My goodness, we saw it's not true this week in Charleston. They were at a prayer meeting. I had a friend text me, a non-Christian friend. How could God allow this to happen inside a church? Elizabeth Elliot passed away about a week ago. If you don't know who she was, you should. She was an amazing, amazing woman of God. She was a missionary. She was a speaker. She was an author. She had a tough life. She knew a thing or two about suffering. She had three husbands. The first two died on her. The first one was martyred in Ecuador. He was a missionary. He was spear in the heart. And uh, she went back after that and ministered. She was a tough woman of God. And she knew a thing or two about suffering. And she just, she's in glory now. But she said this, Our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily protect us, listen, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. Or to put it this way, God allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent through his power. He allows in his wisdom and his love what he could easily prevent by his power. Now, this doesn't mean he wants it to continue forever and ever. No. He wants you to overcome. He wants you to have victory. He wants you to see God magnified in your lives. But just know he is in control of whatever it is you're facing. It is not outside of his plan. He wants to teach you to learn to trust him. He wants to teach you to learn to fight. God is in control. And, you know, one of the hardest areas is when the battle keeps going on and on. You realize these two sides are at a stalemate here, right? They're at a stalemate. If, there was, if, if, if the Philistines were stronger, the Israelites were stronger, you wouldn't have had this situation. There's a stalemate. And so Goliath is coming out day after day and, 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 and you know, saying what he's saying, trying to wear them down, trying to make them afraid. And my friends, the enemy will try to do that to you and me. He will try to whisper words of discouragement and doubt and fear because he knows he can't win. But that's not from Jesus. Discouragement, doubt, and fear are not from Jesus. You reject them in Jesus' name. Okay, so... We've got the two sides, we've got the battle, we've got, you know, God's uh, uh, appointed enemy, and now we're going to get to facing the enemy God's way. Enter David. David enters the scene. He originally comes up just to resupply his older brothers who are fighting and this and that, but he quickly gets embroiled in the conflict. And so when David hears Goliath's challenge, verse 26, he has an immediate reaction What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David gets it. He immediately gets it because he's anointed. He knows this is not just about, you know, some minor skirmish between two fair to middling ancient Near Eastern states. No. He knows this is a divine struggle and God's glory is at stake. So he indicates uh, his willingness to fight Goliath. And word quickly gets back to Saul. Let's go to verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they uh, repeated them before Saul, and he sent for them. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And so Saul basically says, You can't do it. You're too small. And David says, Yes, I can. I've done it before. And in verse 36, he says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God." And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David knows that God has been faithful to give him victory in uh, past battles, and he knows he'll be with him in this battle as well. 
So God face, God's uh, uh, anointed one faces God's appointed enemy God's way. Let's look at God's way a little bit more here. I'm going to see four things have to do with God's way. First one is this. As I look at this story, I realize the most supernatural thing about this story is not David's victory over Goliath. It's his attitude. His victory actually kind of makes sense. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. The most supernatural thing, my friends, is David's attitude, what I'm calling a glory perspective. David immediately realizes he's not getting caught up in the details. He's not listening to the fear. He realizes God's glory is at stake in this battle. Do you realize he's actually the first one in the story to mention Yahweh by name? Uh, Verse... uh, uh, 37, David said, the Lord, that's Yahweh. He's the first one to mention Yahweh by name. In the previous verse, he he says, he has defied the armies of the living God. He knows what's going on here. The glory perspective, if you can maintain this, this will bring with it the zeal and the faith and the courage and all that stuff to see uh, the giants defeated. My friends, I was reminded of this this week. I started out Monday. I had a great day Monday. I got up. I was doing, you know, I was, I was preparing the sermon. I, I was psyched and David and I was, you know, my faith was built. I was having a great day. And then Tuesday, man, I got a text in the morning that took the wind out of my sails. There, there, there was a situation that we thought, was, you know, there was victory in and we realized there had been a setback. It killed me. Oh, man. It ruined my day. It was hard. I did not have a glory perspective. I realized that. I eventually got there, but I had to fight through it. Man, let me tell you, I realized that day that we are incredibly weak, and a glory perspective is not something we manufacture on our own. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from the living God. Seek to cultivate a glory perspective in whatever it is you're facing. Seek to realize what's really going on in your little struggles. I mean, they're not little. They're big. There's cosmic stakes in the balance here. Learn to realize that this is God's glory and this is big. All right. So that's the first thing, David's attitude, his glory perspective. We're going to unpack that, but let's read a little bit more here. So Saul tries to outfit David in all the high-tech gear, but it's not working. So verse 39 and 40, David says, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And then, like, the smack talk begins. Like, this is hilarious. Like, the more things change, right? Like, so verse 41, the Philistine moved forward, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Big mistake. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Ooh. All right. But David, like, David, like, can dish it out as well as he can take. This is just amazing. So verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Again, his glory perspective. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Again, the perspective. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
And so the battle is joined. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a slinger with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was defeated, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. God's anointed champion faces God's appointed enemy, God's way. Now, there's some details you don't want to miss here. We saw before David's glory perspective. There's three other things you don't want to miss them. First of all, let's talk about the sling. The sling, you have to realize, is not an inferior weapon, just unexpected. It is not an inferior weapon, just unexpected. I was doing some research on this. It was kind of fun. All right, so let's get something straight. If you're thinking slingshot, you know, like Bart Simpson or whatever, this is not what we're talking about here. This is a shepherd's sling. And if you want to check it out, just go on YouTube and shepherd's sling. And I watched some really cool videos this week. My favorite was a couple of Afghan shepherd boys, like, using the shepherd's sling. It's like 3,000 years later, like, they're still doing this. It was really cool. A shepherd's sling, it's two pieces of cord about two, two and a half feet long together. And in the middle of them, there's a pouch in between. And you put a stone in the pouch, and you take the two ends of the cord, and you hold them together. So you've got the two ends of the cord. You've got the pouch down here. And you start swinging it around. You're building up momentum. You swing it around, and at just the right point, you let go of one of the cords, and the stone flies out. It is a nasty weapon of war, let me tell you. Malcolm Gladwell, if you know his writing, he has a book on David and Goliath. came out a couple years ago. It was interesting. I was looking at it. He points out uh, that... um, In the Roman times, slingers were actually a division of the army. You had infantry, you had archers, and you had slingers. This is nasty stuff here. You're talking about a tennis ball-sized stone, okay? Average weight about 12 ounces. They know because they found tons of them all over this area. You're talking about, in the right hand, speeds of over 100 miles an hour, uh, hitting a target up to a quarter mile away. And you're talking about hitting at the right distance with a force almost 10 times what is required to crush a human skull. This is nasty stuff. Okay? So, you know, let, this is not like a spitball. This is more like getting hit in a forehead with a line drive or even a decent-sized handgun. It is nasty. So the point is David's approach is not just inferior, just unexpected. Okay? And in the same way, I'm going to get to this in a second, The weapons that God gives you are very, very powerful. They're just unexpected. They're not the weapons of the world. They're different, but extremely powerful. We'll unpack that. So next, you also have to realize David and Goliath represent alternative ways to wage warfare. Alternative. One isn't inferior to the other. They're alternative. Goliath's way is the world's way. What does Goliath do? He's building himself up. He's puffing himself up. He's, uh, uh, you know, it's like toughen up. Man up, be thick-skinned, you know, visualize success. Now, frankly, look, that'll work. Sure, it'll work. Like, if you need to, like, if there's a burning building and you need to, you know, get up the courage to save someone in a burning building, sure, do whatever it takes. That's great. That'll work. But that is the world's way. Notice how different David's way is. Strip yourself down. Come as you are. 
with the mighty and powerful weapons God has given you. Strip yourself down. Second, Second Peter 1, 3 says, God has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Goliath's way is to deny your weakness, toughen up, no pain. David's way is to acknowledge your weakness and let God's strength work through him. And frankly, only a glory perspective will give you this. One other thing, the five stones. I've been thinking a lot about the five stones this week. I don't, know, I don't know if you ever heard any messages about David and Goliath. I heard like one time one guy said, well, Goliath had four brothers. So after Goliath, like David was going to go after Goliath's brother. What? That's not in the Bible. It's just pure speculation. I, I, I've been thinking about this. I believe that the five stones, because he only needed one, right? We know that. It's the difference between faith and presumption. In other words, think of this. He's at the brook. He's picking up the stones. He's saying, you know what? I'm not going to assume that one is, is going to do it. That indicates he is leaving the outcome in the hands of God. This is crucially important. Do you know, every other major story of a sort of combat between God's people and God's enemies, you see faith, you see courage, you see zeal, you see one other thing. For example, Esther. The story of Esther, right? Esther needs courage. She needs zeal. She has to go into the king and plead for the nation before the king. She, and she does it. But what does she say just before she goes in? She says, if I perish, I perish. She's leaving it in the Lord's hands. Or uh, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're, gonna, they're about to get thrown into the den of lions. What do they say? Our God is able to deliver us. Our God will deliver us. So far, it sounds just like David. They say one other thing. But even if he does not, we will not bow down and serve your God. I believe David's glory perspective, as reflected in even the five stones, shows that David is trusting the outcome completely to God. And he is more concerned with honoring God's glory and letting God get the victory, even in defeating Goliath. You know, this wasn't the last battle with the Philistines. There were more battles. Here's the thing. If you only... This is so incredibly important. Oh, my goodness. If you only approach your battles like Goliath, here's the payoff. A setback or defeat will crush you. It will crush you. If you only have a Goliath perspective, you know, if you're trying to overcome some sin or or some, you know, relational difficulty, you're working hard for justice, peace, and mercy. If you only have Goliath's perspective, a setback will crush you. But if you have David's perspective, if you have a glory perspective that leaves the outcome in the hands of God, you'll be all right. You'll have no fear of bad news but your heart will be steadfast, trusting in the Lord. You'll say, you know what? I had a setback. Even so, God is sovereign, and even so, may he be glorified. Only let him be glorified in my life. God's anointed champion faces God's appointed enemies, God's way. I've been making some application all along. I just want to talk for a few minutes about three weapons, three very powerful but unexpected weapons that God gives us, and it's faith and it's prayer and it's forgiveness. There are many others I could have mentioned, but faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Just as we see in the story of David and Goliath, faith is an incredibly potent weapon. I'd like to make the connection to personal sin. If there's sins in your life you're struggling to overcome, I want to encourage you to apply faith that God can and will triumph in this situation as his power works through you. The Puritan writer John Owen said this, act faith on the promises of God for preservation and temptation. 
Listen, to believe that he will preserve us is a means of preservation. Let me say that again. To believe that he will preserve us is a means of preservation. For this God will do or make a way for us to escape out of temptation. He says, set faith to work on these promises of God and expect a good and comfortable issue. This is one of the secrets of the Christian life, I think. Apply faith and the promises of God. And then there's prayer. And the connection I'm making is family relationships. Sometimes we all have tough family relationships. If you're married, if you have kids, whatever, if you have unsaved friends and relatives, there are, they, these are the situations that just go on year after year, and the enemy wears you down, and you're tempted to think, man, this is never going to change. I want to tell you not only to persevere, but pray. pray. Prayer is the primary work of the people of God, and it is a powerful, powerful weapon. And the last one is forgiveness. And again, you know, we saw this week this horrible tragedy in Charleston. This killer was arraigned two nights ago. I don't know if you guys caught this story. He was arraigned over a closed-circuit video feed, and they did something very, very unusual at his arraignment. They let the families of the victims speak at an arraignment. That never happens. The families of the victims spoke to this killer at the arraignment, and one after the other said, I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent of your ways and turn to Jesus Christ, and he can forgive you even of this. Oh, my friends, forgiveness is a powerful, powerful weapon. Doesn't mean he's off the hook for the consequences, but the, oh, what a powerful weapon to demolish strongholds. Practice forgiveness in your life. Worlds can change through forgiveness. We, don't, we have yet to see what God is going to do through this. There's just one other thing left to mention, and it's this. David's greater son. David's greater son. Remember what I said at the beginning? There's emulation. I've talked a lot about that. We're going to talk a little bit more about imputation because at the end of the day, David, as much as he is an example to emulate, and I do believe that, he's far more than that. He is a pointer to one who was to come, the ultimate champion, the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah Jesus. Do you know what Messiah means? It means anointed one. Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, and he is the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate champion, the man in between, who stood up and won a victory that everyone else could participate. The angel came to Mary, and the angel said, God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus is the heir of the throne of David. And the only way that I've found, frankly, to consistently maintain a glory perspective, to continue to trust in God's ways and that he's working everything out, is to look to the victory of David's greater son. You see, David, he did okay. You know, he's one of the greatest heroes of the Bible. But he failed, even David failed. He, he sinned greatly. We'll hear about that. His life kind of fizzled out. But Jesus Christ did everything David came to do and more. The writer of Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death on the cross. He was the ultimate man in between. He was the one who did what no one else can do. He stood in the gap, and he defeated the enemy on the cross. And by the way, one other interesting detail from the David and Goliath story. You notice how the victory takes place in two stages, first with the sling, then with the sword. You realize that? In the same way, the victory of David's greatest son takes place in two stages. Stage one already happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Satan was defeated, but we know he's still active and there's still evil in this world. One day, Jesus Christ is returning, and he will cut off that head. 
and there will never be any more evil or Satan or, or crying or pain. Can I get amen from somebody, please? Thank you. <laughs> well, praise God. Jesus has defeated Satan and death on the cross. Uh, he is the true champion, the man in between. And he's dealt with the ultimate giant so that any other giant in our life just pales by comparison. And you and I, through him, through his victory imputed to us, through his victory transferred to us, can have the, the, the perspective and the zeal and the faith and the courage to see sin and Satan and death overcome in our lives. Only David's greatest son lives up to the ideals of David's kingdom, and only through faith in him and what he did on the cross can we not only have our sins forgiven, but have the power and the courage and the perspective to face whatever will come our way. Or to say in another way, the one who makes our hearts clean is worthy of greater honor even than a man after God's own heart, David. 